Our mission here at Summit Church is what? Yeah, much better. Some of you couldn't believe you shouted the slides, didn't you? Backed off right at this last second there. Pretty funny. For your own sake, for the sake of the world, and for the glory of God, all eyes on Jesus. We're going to expand that a little bit, and we're going to try to in, develop three areas that we become more intentional about encountering God together. You know, we could say by faith God is with us because he said we're two or three or more gathered. He's here. We believe that, but we want God to manifest himself in some powerful ways. So encountering God in real ways, equipping believers to do the work of the ministry. You don't hire ministers, you hire those people who teach and instruct in order to equip the body for the work of the ministry. And then to encourage life wherever we can do it. And so therefore we're, we're celebrating the effort made on Elkhorn Boulevard this past week, handing out chili and just blessing people. Let's give life wherever Awesome. Our goal today really lines up amazingly well with all eyes on Jesus because it's the idea that, that was impressed upon me to challenge each and every one of us who are here this morning to set our sights on eternal things. And that really is the crux of Colossians 3, 2, where it talks about where we're to set our sights. So all eyes on Jesus is rooted in setting our sights in eternal things. But as we look at today's text, John is going to compare and contrast two things. He's going to compare the, the church and the world. And in each of those, he's going to look at three specific things. In the, in the church, he's going to look at three stages of spiritual maturity. While in the world, he's going to look at three types of temptations. So in our time today, I have a hunch that each of us will be challenged uh, by many things, even things I haven't considered because it's the Holy Spirit who's doing his work, so I'm always amazed what God teaches in the midst of a teaching. But I think we're going to be challenged with, with such questions as these. Asking yourself, am I of the church, capital C? Am I of the church of the kingdom, or am I of the world? Am I truly a Christ follower, or not? Where am I as far as my spir spiritual maturity uh, goes, and where is temptation most likely to come in, in my life? So we're going to pick it up here, chapter 2, verse 12, and as we read this, I want you to underline, I would encourage you to underline three words, or in some cases, sets of words, and each of them appears two times. The words are these. The words are children, young men, and fathers. Okay, so here we go. 1 John, chapter 2, starting with verse 12. I write to you... Dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you dear children because you have known the father. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So right off we see these three levels of spiritual maturity beginning with children. And when he says children, he's not talking about kids per se, as much as he's talking about new believers, okay? He's not talking about immature believers, He's talking about people who are new to the faith. And I think it's important that we be really clear right up front that there's a huge difference between what it means to be a new Christian and what it means to be an immature Christian, an immature Christian. A child in the faith is a new 
believer. They may not know the scriptures as well as, as some. They, they may not have all the answers to all the questions that people may pose upon them, but they love the Lord, their intentions are good, and they're making progress in their spiritual journey. Now contrast that with immature Christians who are people who have potentially walked with Christ or have claimed to walk with Christ for a long time, but they haven't grown up and they don't seem to have any intention to do so. Uh, my mentor, Pastor Jimmy, often talked about three different levels of spiritual maturity that he would define as the level where you're spoon-fed, the level where you learn to feed yourself, and the level where you begin to feed others. Uh, the the, the uh, spoon-fed stage reminds me of trying to get a small child to eat. You know, you take that spoon and you say, here comes the airplane, and he opens his mouth and you hope to get it in there before it goes everywhere. And, and we don't want to knock that because there's a time and a place for that to happen, right? Uh, if, if you see a, a nine-month-year-old, uh, you know, that has, has a bib on, he's sucking on a pacifier, he's got juice stains all over his his shirt, and he's being spoon-fed, you might look at him and think that eventually that child's going to make it to his second stage of development, which is where he begins to feed himself. Well, if you see a nine-year-old, right, sitting in a high chair sucking on a pacifier with juice stains all over his shirt, being spoon-fed, then you might think that there's something wrong with that kid. Yeah? Well, why is it any different when it comes to spiritual things? And yet I find it fascinating how in the American church we have people who leave churches all the time because they're saying we're not getting fed, as if to say they're not spoon-feeding me there, right? Yeah, okay, now mind you, didn't Jesus tell the disciples, feed my sheep? Yes, but did you notice someone's being told to feed the sheep and they're just men like you and me, Right? So we come together as a church for corporate worship. We come together to spur one another on uh, toward love and good deeds. We're told in Scripture that the best way we're going to represent Christ and glorify God is by our oneness. We come together because we want to learn and we want to grow. There's, there's value in coming together, but we all must realize that there is a personal responsibility that each of us must get to the place where we learn to sit at the feet of Jesus, where we learn to allow the Holy Spirit through the Word of God to speak truth, truths into our lives. Okay, so we have spoon-fed, learn to feed yourself, and then there's a level where you feed others. My friends, you will never be everything that Christ has intended for you to be until you're not only taking in, but you're giving out as well. Okay, whether that's formal or informal, you need to be investing in other people, okay? And, and I thank God for our Sunday school teachers who are back there every week teaching. I thank God for a core of people that are trying to figure out how do we have better Sunday school, even for adults? How do we do that? We'd like to see that happen. Teachers, as I was told early in my faith, always learn twice. And as your pastor, I have the unique opportunity to sit in the Word and study, to have something to prepare for you. I picture it like I'm wrapping Christmas presents, right? So we can come here and unwrap the presents together and see what God has for us. And you can experience that by getting involved in, in teaching others God's 
God's truth. So new Christians, they're, they're great, great to have around. Uh, it says, I write to you, dear children. They don't have it all figured out yet, but they're like sponges, and they, they soak it all up. They want to take in as much as, as they possibly can. I remember being a new believer and going to a Wednesday night Bible study, because my buddy Pete used to invite me hiking, and, and he said, Mikey, if you want to know about this stuff yourself, just come to our youth Bible study on Wednesday night. So I showed up, and I realized right away that everybody has Bibles but me. Now, unfortunately, they have an old Gideon's Bible there, you know, they loan me. It's written in a language that I've never seen before. And uh, so then they say, turn to the book of, and I had no idea, you know, even with all my catechism that you reference the Bible by books. And so I'm watching people flip through. And so I try to pretend like I'm flipping through, hoping I might just land on that book. Man, there's a lot of books in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, eventually... Uh, I'd, I'd pick up that if I didn't get there, you know, because people would always want to help you, and that's a little awkward. You know, well, can I help you find that Mikey? You know, <laughs> he always called me Mikey, those guys. And, uh, well, I didn't want them to ask me if they could help me. I wanted to know where it was, and so I'd kind of watch where they'd land, and I'd land close to where they are and uh, act like I was there. But then what do you do when the teacher says, so, Mikey, would you please read for us? <laughs> and, you know, you're not there, right? See, new believers... They don't have it all figured out. But notice what he says about them. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Look at that. New Christians don't know a lot, but one thing they do know is that their sins are forgiven. And they need to be anchored there because new believers are, are understanding that, that God is the source of all blessings. So if they want to experience his blessing, they've got to get near him. But his holiness is like a consuming fire and their sinfulness is like dry grass and the two don't mix very well. But praise be to God because Jesus was willing to step down from the throne, take our sins upon him, he himself living without sin, taking our sins upon himself, carrying our sins to the cross, to, and then to the grave so that we don't have to worry about them anymore and then rising from the dead in order to prove that he, he can do that so that now we have access to the Father. That's where we need to begin. It's, it's, it's kind of like the, the booster rocket that gets new believers moving in the right direction. And boy, they love to tell their stories of where they were and what God is doing in their lives. Perfect place to start. So he comes back to new believers then in verse 13. He says, I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. And basically what that's saying is they figured out who their daddy is. <laughs> See, not only do they know their sins are forgiven, but they, they're recognizing their identity and what they were created to be, the very sons of God. So two things about new believers, sins are forgiven, they're coming to know their, their true Heavenly Father. When we get these two things figured out, they become the platform for the Christian life. And they need to be the foundation for, for the Christian life. Someone told me a long time ago, never forget from whence you have come. And that, that's about remembering the fundamentals of your faith. And new believers are all about that. So the application here is for new believers to allow the Holy Spirit to speak in their lives full assurance of their positions as sons and the forgiveness that God has extended to them through his son, 
Jesus Christ. Amen? You all okay? You alive out there? All right, good deal. Well, now we skip over the middle group, and he goes to the very mature believers there in verse 13. These are spiritual moms and dads. These are the people in the church that we all look up to. New believers look up to these people as, as well, but what new believers need to realize is how much more mature believers need to get around spiritual babies because they do each other a world of, of good. And these mature believers, they know their Bibles, they operate out of great wisdom, but notice what John says about them here. He says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. So here we have people who will never forget that God has forgiven them. They'll never forget that uh, God has called them his sons. But now their desire is to get to know him. And, I mean, now they're in a place where they can actually say, I know him. But their greatest desire is that they want to know him more. Not just know about him, but truly know him. Have you ever gotten around people that you have the sense really know God? Yeah. And then you contrast that with people who have been in church forever. Uh, they, they seem to know a lot about the Bible, but you just don't get the sense that they really know God. Mature believers know him. We need spiritual mothers and fathers in the church. We need people who have walked with God for a long, long time. John would have considered himself to have been a spiritual grandfather now that he's in his 90s, according to most scholars. And we need spiritual grandfathers and grandmothers too. And we need those who are spiritual mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers to get around some younger believers and just pour into their lives. I, as I was thinking about this, I was celebrating a man named Mr. Estes, uh, a pastor I talk about often named Reverend Bailey, an ordained minister who was a woman by the name of Rose Stewart, Mr. Davidson. Our RD at college was this, uh, this widow named Gwen Campbell, amazing ladies, all Amazing. She was an amazing lady. All these spiritual parents who invested in me. More recently, I think about Carl Waldeck. You know, anybody miss Carl over there? Yeah. His spiritual parent, spiritual grandfather. I think about Pastor George Vokes. People of influence. We need you around here by the thousands, and we need you to be investing into younger believers because you're not finished until you're out of here, okay? And there's some people who need to get around you. But notice what he says about these spiritual um, fathers. He says, you have known him who is from the beginning. Maybe you can relate to this. When I was a new believer, I loved to study different religions and philosophies. I just want to know what else was out there. Anybody else kind of like that? Remember that day? Well, what I discovered was all these religions and philosophies are typically rooted in some man and some man's ideas. And it didn't take long for the Holy Spirit to begin showing me that I don't need some man and some man's ideas, but what I need is the living God, the one true God. I need to know him, and I don't have to have all the answers to all of the questions that are out there. Mature believers investing in others. Amen? So now we come to this third group, and these are the maturing um, Christians. They're, they're, not, they're, not, I mean, they're not immature, but they're not mature yet either because they're in the process of 
maturing. They're middle ground. Notice what he says partway through verse 13. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then he gives a stronger emphasis in verse 14 when he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. These are people who are experiencing spiritual victories in their lives. They're walking in the forgiveness that we're talking about. They know that they're the sons of God, but now they're getting victory and deliverance in specific things in order to walk in the fullness of Christ. They're transforming. And this is important because think of this. Have you ever been in a place in your spiritual journey where you just feel like you're failing? You know, you're not making progress. You're not cutting it. And then you stop. Maybe you pray and, or maybe the Holy Spirit just speaks in your life. And, and suddenly you're reminded of where you were two months ago or where you were a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. And you look at that and you can see progress. You can see things that God has shown you in relation to his love. You can see things that God has shown you in relation to, to walking into free, in, in freedom. And, and I share this with you because too many times in the church, believers are way, way too hard on themselves. And you need to be considering these questions. Am I understanding his love? Am I experiencing some transformation? None of us is perfect. We're all transforming. We're all in process. How is that so? Well, look what he says. He says, the word of God lives in you. Not that you can flip through the Bible and find the right book. Not that you've memorized a, a whole bunch of scripture, but that the living word is living in you. They're strong because the living word is coming alive in them. One of the first scriptures I memorized was Psalm 119, verse 11, which says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I read that scripture and I held on to it because it showed me that the word of God is key to my victory. And I've learned other things about the word since then. I've learned that the word is encouraging. I learned that the word reminds me that I'm not alone in my struggles. I've learned that the word reminds me of where my strength comes from, where my help comes from, that I can be encouraged, that I can take heart because this world is a temporary place and someday I will go and be with my God forever. Uh, the word helps me to share good news with others. It helps me to spur others on in their faith, so forth and so on. I need the word of God. It's my source of strength. And that's why I love Romans 12 too, where the Bible says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the idea here is that we've been so programmed by the world and its ways because it's the primary theme, theme in the world not with God, but apart from God. And in a real sense, we've been squeezed into the world's mold. We need to break out of the world's mold. And the only way to break out is by being transformed by the living word of God coming alive in us. Not just knowledge of the word, but the Holy Spirit speaking truth into our lives, being reprogrammed. Pastor Jimmy, the mentor I mentioned a moment ago, the guy who said about spoon-fed and uh, feeding yourselves and feeding others. He talks about one time uh, 
where a young person came up to me and said, Pastor Jimmy, I read the Bible and I just don't get anything out of it. And in an instant of inspiration, Pastor Jimmy looked at that young man and he said, you know, it's not nearly as important that you're getting anything out of the Word of God as it's important that the Word of God is getting into you. Now, we could play with that, and we could argue semantics and, and, and how that really looks and what it plays out, but I believe one of the primary reasons that people are coming to Summit Church is because the Word of God is being spoken, and people want to hear the Word of God. They don't want to hear man's ideas and philosophies. They want to know the truth because they believe the truth will set them free, and so that's what we're all about here. Three stages of spiritual growth. Amen? New believers, maturing believers, and mature believers. Well, um, should I press on? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Okay, we'll do it here. If, you're gonna see, if your vote is no, you better speak now. <laughs> oh, three sources of temptation that this next passage, this is verse 15. Do not love the world. Oh, man, hold on a minute. Doesn't the Bible say God so loved the world? And right here it says, do not love the world. Is this like a major contradiction in Scripture or what? Well, it might appear that way until you realize that what he's talking about here is different than John 3.16. And that what's being spoken of here is misdirected passions. It's the Greek word thumos, and we'll see it demonstrated in three types of temptations that are very real and have always been a part of history. Okay, we're going to see this. So do not love the world. Do not have misdirected passion for the world or anything in the world. If anyone has this misdirected passion for the world, the love of the Father is an idiom. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what one has and does, the pride of life. I'm giving those because those are the primary terms we use to define these expressions here. They come not from the Father, but from the world. The, world's, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Hallelujah. So do not love the world or anything in the world. Some of us here grew up in legalistic churches. How many of you would say you grew up in a legalistic church? Okay. The, the tragedy in all of this expression of legalism is that these groups have been classified as fundamentalists, okay? As, as one person has said, he doesn't like the word fundamental because it sure isn't fun. <laughs> and if anything, it's definitely mental. <laughs> it's not fun, but it sure is mental. Well, that's really unfortunate because fundamental is a great word. I mean, come on. We use it in sports, don't we? We use it in music, don't we? We use it in art, don't we? So fundamental and legalism are, are different things. And the problem that I have with legalism, and if you've been in this church very long, you know how I speak out against legalism, okay? And I even allow you to address it if you see it coming up in my life. But let me give you this definition, or, or let me just give you this expression of the legalist. Okay, the expression of the legalist goes like this. Anything the world does is wrong. Can you relate to that? Yeah. The problem with that expression 
is that it confuses those things which are cultural with what the Bible classifies as being worldly. What does the Bible mean when it talks about being worldly? Well, first it comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means to set in order, but it can also refer to the dwelling place of man as opposed to the kingdom of God or hell or something different, okay? As believers, we know that our dwelling on earth is temporary and that someday we're going to be with God in his kingdom forever. In contrast to people of the world who believe that this world is all the heaven they will ever get. Do you see this now? Are you seeing it? Yeah, okay. Great. So that gives us the definition of worldly. It's to put too much stock in this present age. That's what worldly is really about. It's to think, what would the ideal world look like for me? And then to make it your whole life ambition to build that world for yourself. That's the definition of worldly. But friends, it's a world void of giving thanks and praise to God. Romans 1 says that for although they knew God, in, in the sense that there's plenty of God to be seen, although there was plenty of evidence of God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were dark. A place of refusing to give God glory because it's my kingdom. It's my life. I will do with my kingdom. I will do with my life whatever I want to do. So it poses the question, will you love him or will you love the world? Where's your faith? Where's your heart? And in that, he gives us these three temptations, thumas, okay? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. The first thing we need to understand is this. All desire is given to us as a gift from God. Did you hear that? All desire is given to us as a gift from God. Now, Satan likes to play on the desire, which is a gift, in order to get us using it in ways for which it was never intended. Okay, and this is our struggle, that God has given us good things, but there's this tendency toward using them in ways that mess us up rather than glorify God. And it's nothing new. I mean, in the garden when Eve was tempted, in her, in her compromise, she said this, it says this in the Bible, this is Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, flesh, right? And pleasing to the eye, eye, right? And also desirable for gaining wisdom, as though God's keeping something from her, she could excel in life, it wasn't for God, pride of life, right? She took some and she ate it. Same, same with Jesus. Fasted and prayed 40 days. Boy, what is he in the mood for? A, a good meal, maybe, right? So Satan comes to him and tells him to turn stones into bread. Flesh. Then he takes him and shows him all the kings of the world. He says, I'll give these to you. Aye. And then he takes him to the highest point of the temple. He says, throw yourself down. Let's watch all the hosts of heaven come to your rescue. Pride of life. And Satan still tempts that way in those three areas today. Flesh, eyes, pride, they're still happening. They're happening in, in your life and in my life. Friend, 
It is not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to do what Satan tells you to do. Okay, and that's where Jesus had the victory. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, but was without sin. And of you as a believer, the Bible says this, look at this. No temptation, this is 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has seized you except, what's the rest of the sentence? What is common to man. Did you hear that? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. You got to hear that. Because we come in church and we play these games. But I'm not struggling there. And man, that's a playground for defeat. What you struggle with is common to your pastor. It's common to your priest. It's common to that person you look up to. You're not alone in your struggle. Does anybody need to hear that? Oh my goodness. And God is faithful. Anybody need to hear that? (laughs) He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now that verse has been so misquoted so often. People say, God will never give me more than I can handle. Hold on a minute. First off, this is specific to temptation. And secondly, anytime we think that we can handle things, we're in big trouble, okay? Life will give you more than you can handle. You got to hear that. But life will never give you more than you can handle together with God. And that has to be the emphasis of this scripture. So we don't live to satisfy our flesh. We live to, to please God. We don't live to satisfy our eyes. We live to see God. We don't live to glorify ourselves. We live to glorify God. So the question is, and the question we need to ask ourselves are are these kind of things. Am I trying to fill a void in my life that was intended to be filled by God with the stuff of this world? We need to ask ourselves that. Am I trying to escape the battles in my life instead of trusting God to give me victory in the battles of my life? These are the kind of questions we need to, to ask ourselves. Am I living for my glory or am I living for God's glory? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Please don't allow the world to convince you that it can take the place that was intended to be filled by your creator, God. Now look at this verse, verse 17. The world and its desires. That's the exact same word, thumas, lust. The world is lust. Are passing away. Pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Where are you setting your sights? On temporary stuff or on eternal stuff? Stuff that's wasting away or stuff that's going to last forever? Because when we get our eyes off the eternal and on the temporal, we begin to compare ourselves to each other and we begin to feel like losers and we ask ourselves the question, why is it that ungodly people prosper and why is it I struggle so much and why is it that they're doing okay and and I deal with this and boy, we deceive ourselves because we forget no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. There's a guy named Asaph in the Bible, in the 73rd Psalm, and he relates so well to your struggle, okay? He almost gave up, 
gave up on faith. Look what it says, okay? This is the 73rd Psalm, beginning with verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. He must have been struggling, right? Almost gave up. But verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Surely in vain I have washed my hands in innocence. I'm trying to work for God and I'm not getting anything for it. Yeah, goes on. Verse 22, I was senseless and arrogant. I was a brute beast before you. He's talking to God now. He's starting to wake up. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you take me into glory. Hallelujah. He goes on. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. But we get so caught up in, in all our friends and relatives that we're going to see in heaven someday that I wonder if our greatest anticipation is him. Needs to be. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your good deeds. So you see here, the key to victory is resetting our sights. All eyes on Jesus. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart, set your affections, set your desires on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Wow, did the flood mess your faith up? What's sidetracking you? What is it that life isn't giving to you that you need to trust God for? What is that temporary thing that you're trying to hold on to? Even a temporary thing you're trying to hold on to that's destroyed a relationship with someone you're supposed to be loving. What is this stuff? Reset your focus. Get your eyes on the kingdom. Get your eyes on him. Let's be reminded of that today. It's good, friends. It's life that's freeing because those things you're holding on to things you're struggling for, those things that are dividing you, they're going to all perish. And only one thing's going to go on forever. And that's where you want to invest. Invest in eternity. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the In the light of his glory.